This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. We give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Hi there, I am Jenna Ermold, and I'm joined by Andy Santanello, who you've heard many times before. And today on Practical for Your Practice, we are really excited to have one of the Center for Deployment Psychology's experts in chronic pain, Dr. Sharon Berman, join us. So welcome to Practical for Your Practice, Sharon. So good to have you. Thank you for having me, Jenna. I appreciate it. You know, so so Sharon, I got to be honest with you. We just really wanted to have you on the podcast because we like talking to you, and so <laughs> and so we thought we thought we'd get you on here to talk about some of the things you also do for the center. So that's you know that, that was our ulterior motive today. Yeah, exactly. What? How could we possibly have a conversation with Sharon? <laughs> well, I'm ready for that conversation. Good. Well, in in all seriousness, one thing that we were talking about. Um, that we thought would would make a good discussion for in this forum is the notion that a lot of times for many of us, we may be doing an evidence-based psychotherapy for depression or, you know, be doing cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia or one of the uh, treatment protocols for PTSD. And this this guest kind of comes into the clinical room called chronic pain. So our client is struggling with, you know, PTSD, but also really suffering from chronic pain. And it can be something that some providers have gotten a lot of training in chronic pain, some not at all, um, but it can create a lot of choice points and potential areas of struggles for providers. So we wanted to have a conversation about that today. Like, what do you do if you're mid, you know, mid EBP and um, either, you know, chronic pain really starts to present more or seems to be taking center stage? How, how do you manage that? And, and maybe talk about some resources. Uh, so that was kind of setting the stage for today. I think we have certainly come a long way from the biomedical model of pain, right? So we know now that pain is a lot more than just the simple signal from soft tissue to the peripheral nervous system to the central nervous system. We know that the pain experience in and of itself is related to physical components, but also to psychological and psychosocial components. And because the pain perception is actually related to these factors, understanding Um, The psychological and psychosocial factors of pain can really, I think, impact the treatment. We know that there's a high rate of comorbidity with a variety of diagnoses, things like depression, anxiety, PTSD, substance use use disorders, insomnia, all of those things that you were just mentioning, Jenna. So really, I think getting into um, understanding where is some of that overlap. So if it's really, if you're working with somebody that's coming in for depression, coming in for anxiety, for PTSD, and you're really working on appraisal and cognitions, then that's what you want to start looking at with, with pain as well. Particularly those catastrophizing cognitions. There's a lot of information, evidence in the literature that really kind of talks about the negative role in pain outcomes um, because of some of those catastrophizing cognitions. So really starting to look at some of those things, starting to look at possible active coping, right, to prevent negative outcomes, doing things like distraction techniques, Um, as much activity as you can safely possibly do, relaxation techniques, 
all of those things I think can really be integrated very nicely into the EVPs that folks are already engaging, whatever it is they're doing. Because we're already talking a lot about cognitions and we're already talking a lot about behaviors. And so um, I think that's whether whether we want it to show up or not, those those pain related cognitions definitely um, they're they're always strong and extreme. They, you know, similar to some of the other things like, you know, when we hear sleep in sleep treatments you know, I can't stand this anymore. I, I can't, I'm never going to function if I don't get sleep. Similarly, um, because pain is so disruptive and, and hard to tolerate for so many people, those tend to be incredibly strong thoughts too. And, and not to sort of call on Andy as our, as our mindfulness act guru, but I imagine you have some thoughts about that and, and you know, in the act world as well. Uh, I do, in fact. But my first kind of thought was more, you know, just the whole clinical context. And Sharon, you were talking about some of the strategies and techniques that could be used, you know, to to deal with pain when it shows up. Uh, and, and Jenna, you kind of introduced this as in the course of EBP, pain might just be an un, unexpected, uninvited guest. And one of the things I was thinking about uh, as you were talking, Sharon, is I was thinking actually about a client that I worked with a couple years ago. Uh, when I was still in BA and we were doing CPT together and chronic pain was not something that he presented with initially. Uh, and about two or three sessions in, I noticed that um, whenever he sat down, he would sort of wince and go ah, and grab his lower back. And he had lots and lots of catastrophic extreme thinking. So one of the things I was starting to think about is how much the pre just the presence of chronic pain especially when it's not acknowledged and talked about may actually sort of fuel unhelpful thoughts. Uh, and so, you know, even just addressing it, calling it out, saying like, is your back hurting? You know, is this a chronic issue for you? How often does this come up? Do you notice when your thinking is more extreme, you're also in a lot of pain. So, you know, maybe making those connections could be an important part of this too. Yeah, absolutely, Andy. And with depression, I think it's particularly prominent. There was one study that looked at VA patients and found that 54% of patients um, with a diagnosis of depression coming in for treatment of depression had a diagnosis of chronic pain as mm -hmm. well, right? And so we see a great deal of overlap. And I think absolutely they're impacting one another, right? It's kind of like the chicken or the egg. We see this a lot with insomnia patients too. Are they not sleeping well because of the pain or is their pain exacerbated because they're not sleeping well? Same idea here, right? Are they feeling more depressed because they have this chronic, debilitating, relentless pain that is an awful lived experience? Or is their pain worse because they're so depressed that they're going into the cycle of inactivity where they're not actually getting up and activating? And now what we're seeing is a great deal of muscle atrophy, which is actually making the pain worse. I don't know that we necessarily know the answer, but I think it comes back to exactly what you're saying, Andy, which is these cognitions are both playing a role. And either way, these thoughts of, I can't take it anymore. I can't deal with this anymore. It's never going to get better. I think are both reciprocally impacting the pain experience and the depression experience. And so kind of starting to delve into those things, whether it's starting to talk about breaking the cycle of depression, using behavioral activation, and also noticing the pain. So as I'm talking about behavioral activation, how do I start to incorporate discussions about pacing, really teaching them about, about the cycle 
of chronic pain where we move from overactivity, right? Folks with chronic pain tend to have this, oh, I'm having a really good pain day. I feel really good. So today I'm going to do everything. I'm going to clean the garage. I'm going to organize my closets. I'm going to do everything. And then all of a sudden they start to feel this extreme pain where they feel totally debilitated. So they're laid up on the couch for two days. And it's almost the equivalence of yo-yo dieting, right? We're going from one extreme to the other. So as we're talking about behavioral activation, we're providing them with psychoeducation about let's get you up and activated. Let's break the cycle of inactivity. Let's really talk about those environmental sources and how we start to incorporate pleasure and mastery activities. Well, how do we also talk to them about pacing? And also you have this chronic pain condition. So let's also teach you about that and make sure that as you're getting activated, you're also taking these periods of rest so that you're not engaging in that overactivity. You know, and along with that, that pacing and figuring out how to do, how to, you know, deal with the pain consistently. I think one of the things that you mentioned in terms of the behavioral activation that could be important to keep in mind, which might actually help with that is linking maybe that way of approaching pain to something that's really important to the client. So are they getting really active just because they don't feel a lot of pain that day? Or is there activity in the service of, you know, spending more time taking care of their health? Or are they more active because, you know, they're spending time playing with their kids or grandkids or doing work around the house or so linking it to something that's consistently important to them and really creating sort of a new life habit in the service of that may help to un uncouple you know, the activity or an activity level with presence or absence of pain. I absolutely agree. And I think we could do that on both ends, right? Am I identifying that they're engaging in overactivity because it's so valuable for them to spend time with their grandkids? Or are they engaged in so much underactivity that I have to kind of work with them to identify their values and start to figure out how they engage in activity because those things are important to them and how do we start to engage in value-based behavior? And so that part of it, I think, is really interesting to talk about, too, because I think that when it becomes about what do I do to manage my pain, one of the things that might increase pain is spending more time doing something important to you, you know, like, and that's where that inactivity comes in. And I, I'm just kind of curious, and I, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, you know, if you that's were dealing with- podcast is all about, Andy. <laughs> should just call, it's called call, the hot seat. Putting you on the spot. Um, <laughs> I, that's a tough situation because obviously someone who's dealing with chronic pain doesn't want to feel pain. Pain doesn't feel good. Um, and avoiding feeling that pain may be really getting in the way of their functioning in some really important life affirming ways. And you talked about all those connections between chronic pain and depression and also anxiety and other things. You know, the more someone is not doing the things that are giving them that sense of pleasure or mastery, the more that they're going to feel depressed, the more the pain is going to impact them. Do you have any thoughts about just maybe a first step in beginning to, to break that cycle and maybe helping someone to you know, paradoxically move towards an activity that may bring about the experience of pain? Yeah, I think um, coming back to pacing, that can be a really effective way. So the idea that I have to do something for a full hour and moving away from some of those ideas that I have to finish a task within an hour, but rather I can break it down into 15 minute tasks and still get it done. If I do it for a full hour, I may be again laid up on the couch for a couple of days or even a week. And then it's so aversive 
that it becomes kind of in that cycle of depression, right? Those like aversive experiences are things that we start to avoid. So then I don't want to do it again for a month, but rather if I do it for 15 minutes, take a 15 minute break to engage in another task, do it for another 15 minutes. Now I might be able to complete this task. Another thing I think is really important to talk to patients about is how do we modify the things that they love to do? Just because you can't do exactly what you love doing in exactly the same way that you want to do it doesn't mean you can't still engage in the things that are valuable to you. So if you used to love to play football and you can't play football anymore, can you coach a football team? If you used to love working on cars and you can't work on cars the same way you used to, can you teach your son or your nephew or somebody in your family to fix cars and engage with them as they're doing it and find some value or satisfaction in that? I once worked with a patient at the VA and here in Los Angeles, we have a lot of folks that really like to surf and he loved surfing. He was such an avid surfer and there was something about not being able to surf that just made him feel like there was nothing to, it was the most important thing for him. It was just the thing that let him feel free and let go of his stress, his PTSD, his depression. It was the one place where he felt good. And he felt like without that, there was no way he could engage recovery. And what he ended up doing, and he figured this out on his own, was he actually ended up going to these surf competitions of these teenagers that used to go out surfing and doing these, these surf competitions. And he used to take photographs and then share it with the team. And that was the way that he could engage that was totally different than actually being out there and surfing, but really gave him that sense of joy. So, so sometimes it's about pacing and sometimes it's about, I think, modifying the task and figuring out how you can still engage, maybe in a way that's a little different. Which probably opens a bunch of other windows that one never thinks about until one's really faced with making that shift. And I, I was thinking along the lines of PTSD and, um, for example, when you're when you're doing in vivo exposures, I think sometimes we don't necessarily think about the impact of that on pain either. So if I'm setting up a a hierarchy and somebody's, you know, supposed to, you know, Walmart's always on the list and somebody's supposed to approach <laughs> Walmart, the, not target. I mean, it really Kohl's. should be in the diagnostic it criteria, yeah, at least when you're working like, with people in North America, you know? Yeah, exactly. We just can, can give out Walmart gift cards and see what happens. But I, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're really trying to set up the exposure to be successful and to, um, you know, have our client be able to go and experience the anxiety and, and come through it on the other side and, and kind of have it come down on its own. But that involves physical tension, right? Muscle tension and, and other kinds of tensions that in addition to it being unpleasant psychologically um, and causing significant anxiety, you know, when we've got somebody with chronic pain, it really can have an impact on that as well. And so how do you, you know, how, I, you know, how do you work with that in the context of those kinds of situations? Yeah, so I think part of it is just the assessment process itself, right? So making sure that we're paying attention to this. I think in, in uh, you know integrated medical models, pain is a lot of times kind of viewed as a fifth vital sign, right? We look at temperature, rate, pulse, blood pressure, and pain. And one quick and dirty way to ask patients about their pains is just on a scale from zero to 10. So where zero is indicating no pain at all, 10 is the worst possible pain imaginable. You could even ask them to provide you with ratings of the average worst, least pain over the course of the week. But we know that there's obviously some very clear pros and cons to this. So on the one hand, that gives us an idea of where somebody's seeing their pain. On the other hand, it's going to be extremely subjective, right? Somebody's four might be equal to somebody else's seven. And so because of that, because of the difficulties, I think, with Likert scales, um, there's a lot of different um, types of scales that you could really integrate into your assessment 
to get a sense of where somebody's pain is and maybe even make modifications to your exposure exercises. If it's using visual analog scales, if it's using uh, pain rating scales like the Div PERS or the West Haven Yale Multidimensional Pain Inventory, there are even scales that look at functioning or even cognition like the pain catastrophizing scale. So just having some level of familiarity, I think at the outset, as you're really engaging your case conceptualization and really kind of getting a thorough understanding of what's going on with the patient, getting that kind of ideographic map of what is the story here and how do I best help them that really informs our treatment plan, I think you can start to incorporate that. The other thing that I think is really critical with pain patients um, is relaxation, right? So relaxation techniques are these fundamental skills um, for managing chronic pain. So this uh, you know, notion is not necessarily unfamiliar to people, but I think helping them to understand the uh, the rationale behind it, right? That these can be really, really important because we're focusing on pain as a chronic stressor, both physically and physiologically, right? And uh, sorry, physically and psychologically. And so you were talking about that, Jenna, you were talking about the tension that people experience when they go out and do the exposure. And so we know that this happens with both diagnoses, right? With PTSD and with chronic pain, there's this tension that occurs. The body is reacting. The fight and flight response is essentially activated. This stress response that's controlled by the sympathetic nervous system, which is important and critical for survival when we're facing dangerous or stressful situations. But what we want to do is teach them that for both of these diagnoses, engaging the opposite physiological response, really activating that parasympathetic nervous system can play a huge role. So I think assessment and relaxation techniques, especially, especially, especially with folks that have these comorbid pain conditions can go a long, long way. Yeah, I agree. I think the other piece that, um, in my experience of working with, with, with patients who had chronic pain was what their expectation of my, you know, of me and my reaction was going to be. These are, these are, and again, this is in my humble experience, um, you know, patients who have gotten a lot of different receptions to their pain, um, some good, some not so good. Uh, and so, you know, Andy, kind of going back to that client you were talking about who didn't, you know, was like bracing and making noises, but had never sort of talked about pain. You know, some, some clients really want to talk about that and bring that to the table, but others are really hesitant because, they've had negative reactions from providers or feel really frustrated with the medical system and systems they've been in to try to manage their pain. And so, you know, I think getting back to the rating scale, asking the questions important. Um, I think we're a little numb. Sometimes I feel numb to that because we get at, you know, it's like now the new question is, have you, have you fallen lately? Or, you know, there's like stability questions that are being asked now, but because it's asked so often, I think sometimes people do blow it off, but if you ask about it in a compassionate, empathic, meaningful way, um, and, and then kind of talk about that relationship to what's going on with them um, clinically, and then, you know, in terms of your treatment plan, and, and even with the example we were talking about with exposure, you know, maybe they're rating their subjective units of distress, but they're also rating their levels of pain, and you can kind of watch those and track them over time. Um, as there's less bracing, you know, and, and the anxiety is kind of going down, you know, maybe you're going to see that change over time too. So I think um, all those, you know, I think it'd be good to talk at some point about tools. Um, if there's, you know, we're, we, we like to have folks walk away with practical things they can employ. Um, and certainly we'll ask you for that actionable intel at the end. But, you know, any, any resources or tools you think that 
our, our group of providers would want to access? Yeah, I think there's a couple of really good resources. I would say if I could give folks one tip, it would be don't be afraid to engage pain, even if you're not formally trained. First of all, the Center for Deployment Psychology does have a two-day EVP for CBT for chronic pain. So if folks are interested, please come join us. It's a great training and really talks about how we make modifications to CBT to apply it specifically to chronic pain. But even if you're not trained and you have that patient that's coming in for depression, PTSD, anxiety, whatever it is, and chronic pain is that uninvited guest that's showing in on session six or seven or eight and you didn't notice it prior, don't be afraid. A lot of the same techniques are overlapping if we're looking at the behavioral techniques, the cognitive techniques, um, the problem solving techniques, the relaxation techniques, just don't fear it and start to look at the overlap. There's some really, really, really nice resources and I'm happy to provide you with the links to them. Um, the VA actually developed uh, a really well-written manual with included worksheets in it um, for CBT for chronic pain. It's available in the public domain for whoever wants to access it. They also have a chronic pain website. So they have a website that talks about chronic pain resources, including not only the manual, but they have a list of different um, videos that kind of walk you through an example of a VA therapist working with a veteran, really working through different types of skills, talking about psychoeducation, talking about how to engage the primary care doc if you're working with folks with chronic pain, um, talking about all kinds of different skills and techniques, which I think can be really, really useful. Um, and the Association of uh, Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies also has a webpage uh, specifically for chronic pain where they have a variety of resources as well, including fact sheets that really go through and provide a nice thorough understanding of what is chronic pain, what are the causes, and what are some good treatment interventions. So lots of good information that's out there available and accessible. So we really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. And there's a couple of things that I heard you say throughout our conversation that seemed to you know, be in the neighborhood of actionable intel that I wanted to run by you and just see if this made sense. So I think I love your first, you know, sort of piece there, which is not to be afraid of it, you know, to ask about it, to engage it. You also mentioned assessment, uh, you know, being really important. And uh, you mentioned a number of different assessment tools uh, in our conversation today. I believe um, at least several of them are available in our patient forms page. And so hopefully we can include uh, some additional links for other measures that maybe aren't on the page already. And you mentioned relaxation techniques, which I think is part of the repertoire of most CBT therapists and maybe not something that most CBT therapists think are a good intervention for chronic pain, but you know, that could get you, you know, into the room with somebody and help, help them pretty quickly and doing some of those techniques. I know it's you know, breathing exercises are, are part of P, the PE protocol, for example. And so it's actually built into some of the EVPs. So not being afraid of it, doing some good assessment of it, um, and maybe incorporating some relaxation techniques seem like a pretty good place to start. Absolutely, Andy. I appreciate the summary of those actionable intels. That, that There's some very good ones. The one last little one I wanted to ask about, because again, I know your other area of significant expertise is in suicide prevention. And we, we know there's a relationship between chronic pain and, and suicide as well. And, you know, given that we, we have some good interventions for suicide, any, any actionable intel kind of in that realm that, that if there is, you know, advice you would also give if there's concerns regarding that? Yeah, that's a great question, Jenna. With 
kind of the link between um, chronic pain and suicide, I think we have trait unbearability in the literature, and we see over a twofold increase in suicide risk with those individuals that are coming in with these um, cognitions around trait unbearability. So what I'm talking about is really when you're in the room clinically with a patient is to start to keep an open ear for statements such as, I can't take this anymore. I can't deal with this anymore. Things will never get better because those are the exact type of cognitions that lend to hopelessness, which we know is the second strongest correlate for suicide risk. So those are really the things that I'm looking for that are indicators that there might be an increased risk for suicide. And I might even want to engage in a suicide uh, risk assessment at that point in time. But those are certainly um, areas that I would want to tackle uh, clinically. So those are the exact cognitions that I would prioritize um, in tackling when I'm working with a patient presenting with pain? Great question. Great. Well, again, we are incredibly grateful not only to have you on CDP faculty, but uh, that you jumped in and joined us today um, and are definitely looking forward to some future conversations more actually about suicide prevention. So wanted to give you a huge thank you uh, and hope that everybody walked away with some good insights and you know the main one being I think again this idea of don't be afraid and approach and we'll definitely try to include some resources so thanks so much Sharon we really appreciate it thanks so much for having me thanks for listening to practical for your practice please feel free to subscribe rate and join in on the conversation in the comments until next time